Hey guys, this is Ian Happ from the Chicago Cubs. I'm excited to announce that my show, The Compound, is now part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Join me and my teammates, Dakota Meckis and Zach Short. This week, we welcome Cubs first baseman, World Series champion, Anthony Rizzo, to The Compound. Check it out. Subscribe. The Compound on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Blue Wire. Boyd with a great face. Touchdown, Todd. Lean means touchdown throwing the screen tonight, and he's got another one. Boyd, and again, Todd. Oh, what an effort! Welcome back to the Dodge Boyd Podcast. Hope all has been well, my friends, and that you and your loved ones are staying safe out here. Now, I want you to remember this as you go about your day. No matter what life throws your way or the obstacles soon to be seen, just know that it's a great day to have a great day. We get an opportunity every day we wake. I always appreciate a reminder here and there, and that's just me throwing some good vibes to you. All right, with the growing conversations of police brutality, racism, and social inequities in America, I wanted to bring you someone on the podcast who could really break things down in a way that not only is informative, but could provoke thoughts of intercession within our own communities. In this episode of the podcast, you'll be hearing from Dante Stewart. Now, Stu is an accomplished author, speaker, teacher, student, husband, and a dad. He's a lot of things, and he's well-versed in theology, black history, and black culture. He was also a teammate of mine at Clemson. That's right. Go Tigers. He has been instrumental for me as I navigate my own plan of action to implement change right where I am. But you know what they say. Education is the passport to the future. For tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. I learn something new every time I have a conversation with Dante, and I hope that you will too. As always, if you haven't hit that subscribe button, make sure you do that. I appreciate you tapping in to the Taj Boyd podcast. Here we go. You know, for the people that are trying to figure out how to navigate, where to start? I mean, how do they start? Yeah, that's that's good, bro. Um, you know, I think I think one of the things. We, we have to realize, bro, is, you know, a lot of times people, especially when it comes to conversation regarding race today, you know, a lot of people would say, you know, what should I do? What should I do? What should I do? What should I do? And I get that. But in some sense, we, we have to ask ourselves, you know, what should I feel and what should I know yeah. and what should I be seeing? Right. So I think that concept of 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 feeling of knowing and of seeing, you know, is just incredibly important right now. And especially, you know, as it relates to, you know, how did we get where we are? Uh, because a lot of times people would let's take, for example, the civil rights movement and and and, you know, how we understand the civil rights movement today. Usually people would understand the civil rights movement is, OK, hey, Rosa Parks, Rosa Parks <laughs> sat down on the bus King and, and, and the band came to Montgomery, uh, and then, you know, they protested, but they were, they were, they didn't protest like Kaepernick. They, they were cool about it. They were like, you know, they were, you know, they were, they were, they were quote unquote the nice ones and, you know, they weren't trying to upset anything. 
uh, uh, whatnot. And so it's uh, it's even this kind of narrative of difference in the black freedom struggle in our kind of collective memory yeah. that a lot of times we think of like Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King them as, you know, just nice kind of protesters. And in some sense, you know, we don't even realize that the civil rights movement, you know, let's say Brown versus Board of Education happens in 1954. Yeah. Emmett Till, Emmett Till, which many of us in some sense don't even know. We don't even know the name Emmett Till. Yeah. Um, Emmett Till, who would be the young brother from the north who would uh, be lynched and his mother, uh, Mamie Till, uh, would have an open casket funeral. Uh, and it was really Emmett Till who was the last straw, much like George Floyd today, mm-hmm. which, which was the tipping point. And, uh, you know, for many people to say, you know, enough is enough. The same thing with George Floyd today was the same thing with Emmett Till of, of yesterday, where black people said enough is enough. And Rosa Parks was like, she was not tired. Uh, she was not tired. She she was, uh, uh, if anything, her soul was tired of the deep embedded white supremacy in her society that saw her as less than yeah. uh, and, and killed her people in very violent ways. And so. I think even when we think about the civil rights movement, it was like, you know, hey, racism died in the civil rights movement. Uh, you know, they got laws changed. So, you know, what 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 in some sense, you know, more do you want from us or what more do you want from America? Uh, people don't even realize that even though Brown versus Board of Education was uh, instituted from the federal government in, in 1954, mm-hmm. uh, there were still states that protested the integration uh, uh, particular bill all the way into the 70s and 80s. Sure. Uh, and it's like, you know, I mean, people would think that, you know, everything that the civil rights movement was like, you know, hey, everything was one in the civil rights movement. But in actuality, you know, we're still in that long civil rights struggle today for black freedom. And I think, you know, as we try and read history and understand history uh, and really reimagine what we mean by, you know, in, in some sense, what race means in our society, I think in some sense that's a legitimate first step. I was just reading this um uh, essay today, a bri- absolute brilliant essay by Michelle Alexander, who wrote uh, um, The New Jim Crow mm. uh, about ma- mass incarceration. And she was, you know, she was the kind of mastermind behind the documentary 13th, yeah. uh, which really delved into mass incarceration. She wrote a essay, a absolute brilliant essay. Um, it was either today or yesterday uh, entitled America, This Is Your Chance. And one of the things she writes is that we must face our racial history and our racial present. She said that we cannot solve a problem that we do not understand. And she says ever since our nation has been trapped, you know, ever since this kind of like if if we didn't post the Civil War during Reconstruction, we could have we could have gotten right. right regarding racial, political, social, and economic justice uh, that would upend this kind of logic of white supremacy that values white life, white communities, white property even, uh, and white power over uh, everyone else, particularly uh, black citizens in this country, that we could have got it right in Reconstruction, which was right after the Civil War. But she says, ever since our nation has been trapped in a cycle of intermittent racial progress, followed by fierce backlash and the emergence of a new and improved system 
of racial uh, and social control. So I think what she would say that, you know, we need to understand this racial history and racial past. If we're un- if we are in some sense to understand our present moment of race right now. Yeah. And, and along those lines, I mean, you talk about Emmett Till, which is, you know, uh, quite frankly, I mean, it was disturbing, you know, um, mm-hmm. that, a human can do that to another person. Um, exactly. I mean, it was it was savage, you know, um, mm-hmm. in its entirety. And to know that it was done off of false assumptions makes it even mm-hmm. you know, that much worse. That was a tipping point. Mm-hmm. And so, what change did that bring about? Where do you see? Because I, I, I hate that a person had to be sacrificed to a degree. A person mm-hmm. had to die yes. in order yes. for change to occur. Yeah. And this, I mean, it's built in blood, all right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And where does, from, from Emmett Till and the change that occurred right after that, to the movement, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. where we're at now and, and where, I, where I hope that we're headed I mean what do you think that it looks like do you think that change can happen uh, almost immediately do you think that it takes you know a uh, hundred years do we see it in our lifetime uh, because I mean you have to, there's so many things that have to happen in order for it to to really unfold you know so many things have to topple over Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, as far as I as far as narrating change in our society, I think, you know, we have to say that, yes, there has been progress in our society. And I think that's something something that one can acknowledge that, you know, there has been progress in our society. Of course, you know, there is not overt um, laws put in place yeah. in, in into which, you know, black people are confined to, you know, certain spaces that they can and cannot travel. Uh, And so in some sense, we would say that, yeah, there are, you know, black CEOs and yes, there are, you know, black people in spaces of influence. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, we have to be careful how we narrate that story of, you know, black people as, as being in some sense, you know, as as narrating America's racial progress oh, as yeah. legitimate to match the type of terror that we've already uh, been in. And I think Eddie Glaude, a professor of African-American studies out at Princeton uh, University, uh, he would write in his book, Democracy in Black, that when we look at and he, he, the, the book is contextualized to the Ferguson situation that went down um, a few years ago. And he says one of the things that we have to realize is that, yeah, that, you know, Ferguson and even beyond, you know, Ferguson, it, we can kind of contextualize this to sports. Yeah. That Kaepernick, when it comes to sports, exposes a painful reality. This is the word of God that the United States remain fundamentally a nation shaped by its racist past and present. This is a hard fact for some Americans itself, of course, though uh, we're not the same country that we were in 1860 or 1960, that, you know, black people run Fortune 500 club uh, companies and they're marriers, they're professors, 
But despite the real gains we have made, God writes, white supremacy continues to shape this country. He writes the phrase white supremacy, as many in some sense, you know, that language of white supremacy, bro, is something, you know, that's not in, you know, our white brothers and sisters kind of lexicon. Yeah, uh, they they you know, many of our brother, white brothers and sisters want to, you know, lean away from language of white supremacy uh, uh, whatnot. They will call out injustice. Uh, they will call out racism. But, you know, they won't call out white supremacy because white supremacy in our country, when when we're talking about white supremacy, that fundamentally addresses white people's notion of themselves. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, as James Baldwin would say that, you know, whiteness and white supremacy uh, in this country are so bound. And so, you know, when we say whiteness is a problem and white supremacy is a problem, many of our white brothers and sisters you know, would kind of run from that particular language. But I think we need to press into that language, especially as we relate as it relates to notions of progress yeah, yeah. Uh, regarding regarding race, where Glaude would say that the phrase white supremacy conjures up images of bad men and hoods. Uh, robes who believe in white power or even some years ago, bro, uh, Charlottesville, you would not replace us. Or even these young kids right now during the George Floyd challenge with pictures of right. their foots on other white kids neck. We would say, you know, that's white supremacy. But Glaub would say that's not quite what I mean here. He says on a broader level, white supremacy involves the way a society organizes itself. And what and whom it chooses to value. Yeah. He says apartheid in South Africa and Jim Crow in the South and Nazi Germany are clear examples of societies organized by white supremacy. In each case, the belief that white people are valued more than non-white people shapes every aspect of our social and political life. It determined where you lived, which schools you attended, what jobs were available to you. Right. It reminded you daily of your status and station in life. And that's white supremacy without all the bluster, a set of practices informed by the fundamental belief that white people are valued more than others. Yeah. And I think when we narrate this notion of progress, I was sharing in a, in a podcast the other day, you know, do I believe, you know, in progress, in this understanding of progress? And I would say kind of, sort of. Uh, I believe, you know, that if we are to narrate the story of progress, we have to narrate the story of progress from below mm -hmm. and not from above, because if we narrate the story of progress from above, in some sense, we would see clearly that, you know, our white brothers and sisters haven't made much progress. We're having one can, you know, read a Martin Luther King book from 50 years ago. Yeah. One can listen to a speech from Malcolm X 50 years ago. One could, in some sense, hear a speech by Fred Hampton 50 years ago. One could hear the kind of fiery oratory of Angela Davis in the 70s, and it'd be the same conversations yeah. that we are having today. You know, we're still trying to make our white brothers and sisters, quote unquote, get it. And I have to ask with James Baldwin, you know, how long do we have to wait on your progress uh, and Martin Luther King would say that, you know, these notions of progress in our society, you know, has forced upon black people yeah. a credibility gap 
that every pre- that that we hear the language of equality and we believe that you know they, they that our brothers and sisters mean what they say but every time you know the next step of justice is to come in there is apathy and ever present backlash and i love that king quote because it in some sense allows us to understand our country today we have to say you know, when I narrate the, the the story of progress, I ask, you know, is America a country with racism yeah. or is America fundamentally a racist nation? Mm. And that question determines how we narrate the race problem, how we narrate solutions and even how we narrate. What does it mean to progress in a society? So if America is simply a country with racism, And our definition, our working definition of racism is overt, public, clear acts of bigotry and discrimination by individuals against other individuals. Then we would say that America has made progress because it's not cool to make open public acts of discrimination and bigotry uh, or whatnot. And we would say that, you know, the solution then becomes All we need to do is become friends. We just become friends and we have unity and we have this kind of language of love. And, you know, people narrate, you know, go to the football uh, stadium uh, or locker room and, you know, you will see what America can be. You know, there's this language of, you know, the football locker room. Everybody love everybody. We don't see color. Well, I mean, that just does not tell the truth of, you know, America. And so if racism is that, we would say, you know, the solution is simply, you know, get people in proximity with one another. And then hopefully that would change their behavior, their attitudes and the way they relate to one another. But the reality is this. The question is, does that definition and that solution hold up to the test of history? And we would say it doesn't. That no matter how cool we are with one another in the locker room, when we leave the locker room and we go home from practice, they see our teammates as white and they see us as black. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Sure. You know, and no matter. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, you know, I was watching uh, I'm Not Your Negro by uh, James Walden, right? James Baldwin. I was so uh, thankful that Amazon put it up there for the free, you know. Um, But in it, bro, what we're talking about is a whole thought stream shift. Mm-hmm. The whole understanding of, of, of what it looks like. And, and oddly enough, the quote I'm about to read is very similar to this thing that I just watched on Netflix, Trial by Media. Where mm. This guy goes and he kills this white guy. He kills, or not kills, but shoots four um, black guys on the subway. And mm. in their mind, you know, they made it seem like this guy was just some vigilante who was tired of being pushed over and they try to make him into this this uh, hero which is the media did mm. and they made him into this hero mm-hmm. and then it turns out that he was never provoked at all but there were some underlying uh, feelings that he had towards that community right mm. and so that was his reason to strike out and shoot and, mm. and I'm looking at um, you know this one from James Baldwin right here and he says a black man who sees the world in the way John Wayne sees it will not be an eccentric patriot but a raving maniac mm. that this country does not know what to do with this black population. And so the mm. whole shift of, of the conscience mm. is where mm. it comes in that, you know, whereas most people are patriots, you know, we're considered thugs because. Our exactly. Exactly. And, you know, this is back to that working definition of, 
you know, race and that question. I think this is the question that we have to ask that James Baldwin, you know, forced us that Martin Luther King forced us to, to consider. And, you know, Martin Luther King, you know, a lot of people, particularly our white brothers and sisters, they they love to quote Martin Luther King. But I, I just have to wonder if, you know, many of our white brothers and sisters actually have dealt with Martin Luther King. Uh, one of the things that King would say, you know, is in some sense, he, 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 he noted that whites, it must frankly be said, he know this is in his last book. Where do we go from here? 1967. If anybody wants to read that, you should. It's just essential reading. Uh, he says whites, it must frankly be said, are not putting in a similar mass effort to reeducate themselves out of their racial ignorance. It is an aspect of their sense of superiority that the white people of America believe they have so little to learn the reality of substantial investment to assist Negroes in the 20th century. And we can say in the 21st century where, you know, you have scholarships and works of charity in their mind that, you know, hey, you should be grateful for being here. Yeah. Uh, we will we'll invest in like, you know, the kids in the community yeah, yeah. we will get bags and do this and do that. So there is a, you know, reality of substantial investment and adjusting to black people. But it is still as King would say, a nightmare for all too many white Americans. And I think, you know, we have to ask that question, you know, as King would write, you know, in racism and white backlash, you know, King is asking that question. Is America a racist nation or is America simply a country with racism? And I would say America is fundamentally a racist nation. Uh, Working with the definition, you know, that race has become and is and for a long time has been a defining a dehumanizing, a destructive and a deadly reality in the way a society is structured in its policies, in its practices, in its values and in its outcome. Yeah. Now, I'll, I'll say that very slowly uh, or, or whatnot. So race has we I, I would define in, in that a criterion for understanding race is that race is a defining a dehumanizing, a destructive and a deadly reality in the way a society is structured in its policies and its practices, in its values and in its outcomes. And I think when we understand this working definition of race, we would say that race indeed is a defining reality in American society yeah. uh, to do the thought experiment of Jane Elliott. Uh, If we were sitting in a class, I would say, you know, students, uh, take out your census or take out, you know, your birth certificate and put your hand up in the air. And I would say uh, it would just be a thought experiment for us to understand, you know, this language of race uh, in our society. And I would say, hey, students, put your hands up in the air. And everybody who didn't put W on that document, put your hand down. And so you'll see all these black people hands go down. You'll see all these Hispanic hands go down and Asian hands go down uh, uh, and, and, and other people hands go down. And I would say, OK, well, I don't know if you heard me. If you didn't put W on that uh, document, put your hand down. So white people, their hands would still be up. And I would say, hey, whoa, I don't know if you heard me correctly. If you didn't if you didn't put white on that, if you didn't put W, put your hand down. And I will let students know. Because you still have your hand up, you understand that white means something for you. Absolutely. 
It is a defining reality for you. Now, let's go to another question. Keep your hands up in the air. As Professor Jane Elliott would say, she would say, if you as a white person would change places with a black person at any point in our society, put your hands down. If you as a white person, because you already understand that white means something for you. So it's okay to say I'm white. Uh, you can say all you want that I don't see color, but when you go into that, you know, when you put it on that census report and all your medical documents and all your documents, they say W. And so, you know, it's defining something, defining reality for you. If you want to trade places with black people at any point in time in history, put your hands down and not one hand went down in that experiment, nor would one hand go down today. Why? Because white brothers and sisters know white means something for them and they know black means something dehumanizing, destructive and even deadly for us. Therefore, they would not change places. And so we have to say, as Glaude would say, that there is a value gap in our society that values that this defining reality of race values white people. Uh, It dehumanizes and devalues us. It has become destructive in the policies and in the practices and the structure of our society that black still relegated to second class citizenship, that we are still exploited in our culture and in our people and in our bodies and in our minds and in our communities. Uh, we're still exploited. We're still disrespected in very meaningful ways. And even with the killing of Amar Arbery, with the killing of Breonna Taylor, with the killing of George Floyd, it is a deadly reality that distinguishes uh, a want of life uh, and a per- per- sacredness and preservation of life relegated to white people with ARs in Michigan State Capitol, loaded ARs in front of cops. But George Floyd and Amal Arbery and Breonna Taylor don't get the same type of life because they are criminalized and dehumanizing our society. And I think we have to realize that our, that is the case, which I believe it is. And I think, you know, that proves in some sense very in a very strong way that our country is fundamentally racist, that our problems are much deeper. Uh, as James Rowland would say, that this history is more beautiful and more terrible, yeah. because in some sense, we as black people throughout our history, not only have we had to deal with the tragic dimensions of this society, but we have had an unshakable faith, an unshakable hope, an unshakable uh, type of vigor for life, uh, a persistence of protest yeah. to say that we are black and we proud and we are here to fight for our dignity no matter what. I mean, what is it about black people that people hate? You know, I mean, when you look at Ahmaud Aubrey, when you look at George Floyd, when you look at Michael Brown, when you look at Breonna Taylor, you know, if somebody turned on the, the film, right, right before it happens, they'll say, well, what did we what did we not see in the film? What happened at the beginning? Like, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Just trying to figure out this justification or mm-hmm. you go online and you see the images and then there's another person who says, well, he had a criminal history. Like, wh- what is it, man? Because I mean, mm-hmm. when you look at how uh, enslaved the the, the mm-hmm. people were, we yes. as black people have exactly. been, it's like man, like you know, you try to love people and they don't love you back, mm-hmm. and I don't understand the thought behind that and why mm-hmm. they're because there hasn't mm-hmm. been change there to be completely yes. honest. I mean, there's just this 
this instant conversation where, all right, well, he must have did something wrong. You know, exactly. He must have did something exactly. wrong. Exactly. Exactly. And I think this kind of goes back to that idea of, you know, the defining and dehumanizing aspect of race in our country. Right. That because, you know, so much in history, you know, that that, you know, white people have been almost as King would say, you know, the, he would call it the doctrine of white supremacy. Um, and I think we need to utilize that language that, you know, this language of white supremacy is almost in some sense a religion. Yeah, it is a it is a faith. It is a faith system. Uh, it is a belief that God has blessed white people to be, you know, the rulers of the world. Yeah. To be the judge, jury, and executioner of everyone, and that they must be the one by which everybody's legitimacy and humanity is tested against. Yeah. And in some sense, when race as a social construct, so we understand that race is a construct. Yeah. It is a construct, even though, as I would say, it's defining, dehumanizing, destructive, and deadly, yeah. it is a construct but it is a construct that has a reality yeah but indeed is a construct and so when race became a construct in the early 1400s and the 1500s as um a really good book on this is uh a, a smaller version i would i would suggest this smaller version by uh, jason reynolds and ibram ibram kendi he wrote a bigger version called stamp from the beginning the, a definitive the the definitive history of race yeah. racist ideas in America, but Jason Reynolds, who's a young adult black fiction uh, writer, he kind of made it geared towards high school students and young adults called Stamped: Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. And one of the things that Ibram Kenny brought out in the original work, Stamped from the Beginning, is that you know when race became a social construct in the 1400s and the 1500s. The language of blackness and whiteness, uh, in some sense, took on a new form. Black became evil, criminal, barbaric, savage. White became pure, peaceable, lovely, beautiful. And I think this history of how we have been socialized to understand uh, what whiteness and blackness mean in a society, in some sense, you know, has carried on to this day that when, you know, Tamir Rice, a 12 year old, beautiful young son, young brother is playing, you know, he's enacting what shows are teaching us as kids that we get to play cops. Why we can't play cops and robbers as black kids outside? Well, he evidently thought that. And within seconds, he is murdered as a 12-year-old brutally by police. If we simply look at the language that my, that, that uh, the, the, the cop who brutally murdered Michael Brown, look at his defense and his language. He's big and bulky and I fear for my life. Or look at the language that Amy Cooper out of New York uh, used against the brother who was bird watching. The brother is mm. big and yeah. bulky. And so I fear for my life. And then you listen to the language that she uses. She says, not only am I going to call the cops, but I'm going to tell them that an African-American man. And so she understands that the state, that whiteness can be 
a weapon. And I would even then I would even go as far as to say that whiteness is fundamentally a weapon oh, that sure. the state will protect. Right. And so there is a certain type of like you understand that you are pure and innocent and that uh, uh, blackness is is savage is less than and it's and even this language of how we understand, you know, culture. So many people and I, I love how uh, Kiyanga Yamada Taylor works this out in her brilliant book um, from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Uh, she she would work this kind of idea out in that book. It was on the uh, Ferguson. It was on life after Ferguson. And she had a, a incredible section in this book on on culture that oftentimes, you know, and she quoted something that Tana Tana Coates uh, said in his book, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Where oftentimes this language of blackness and whiteness kind of show how we narrate our stories. Like blacks are criminals. Black have black people have a culture, a bad culture. So therefore, black people need to be punished and criminalized. Yeah. And then white people become the ones who can punish and who can criminalize and the ones who must dominate and put you in order. So anybody black who kind of goes outside of that social construct of relating to one another and life together, then now they are the ones who become threats. So but the black people who don't kind of go beyond that construct, they're the ones who are the good black people. Yeah. They're in notice this language, they're the good black people. And Kianga Yamala Taylor in that section, a culture of racism, uh, would in some she she quotes Tanahasi Coates, and I thought this was brilliant, where Coates write, he says that there's no evidence that black people are less responsible, less moral, or less upstanding in their dealings with America, nor with themselves. But there is overwhelming evidence that America is irresponsible, immoral and unconscionable in its dealing with black people and with itself. Urging African-Americans to become superhuman is great advice if you're trying to create uh, if you're concerned with creating extraordinary individuals. It is terrible advice if you're concerned with creating an equitable society. The black freedom struggle is not about raising a race of hyper moral superhumans. It is about all people garnering the right to live the normal human like like the normal humans that they are. And I think Tanahasi Coates would say, you know, that too many people, you know, because they criminalize our blackness and they in some sense blame us for our situation. Uh, oftentimes they say, you know, the problem exists with us. And so we are the problem. Therefore, you know, we're the ones who are criminal and, and, and we need correction rather than, you know, systems to be changed. We need, you know, moral discipline. We need discipline and direction, uh, or whatnot rather than, you know, a system to change. And so I think when, when, when this society, kind of looks at us and this goes all the way back these racist ideas uh go all the way back to in some sense you know to the nexus of or the origins of what we understand to be race in human life they go all the way back but they are they they literally are fundamentally powerful ideas of how America relates to white people and America relates to black people. And I really do think, bro, this language of criminality and blackness being less than and whiteness being pure in some sense affects so much in our lives today. 
man, it's such a it's so it's so deep. We got so many layers to it, man. It really does, and um, that's why it's such a it's such a task, bro. Like I just, you know, I mean, and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about you know where I was born at and then where I grew up at and um, mm. you know growing up as an athlete. You know, I wanted to do everything I can to try to create a level playing field for myself, and the only way to do that was through athletics. You know, or at least to be seen mm. at as a as a peer. You know, mm. without being anything else. Um, and the fact that I feel like as a community, you know, there's limitations in that. Um, one that we have within our own community, but then from a societal standpoint, the overview, mm-hmm. it's. It makes it tough, man. It makes it hard. It really does. And it's you know such a such a deal where I mean we got to be able to to push and change the narrative, but it's so hard when you don't know how to do it, you know? Because because now yeah. like that's not what you know you're talking about building something that hasn't even existed, you know? And, and you see it in exactly. sports, but there's not a, a plethora of people in different spaces to make it make sense, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, that's why it's so important for us, you know, to have a commitment to engaging and being educated regarding race in our society. Because if race is a defining, dehumanizing, deadly and even destructive, you know, reality in the way that society is structured in its policy practices and in its outcomes uh, and in what a society chooses to value, then we need to have a working knowledge. That doesn't mean we need to have a perfect knowledge, but we need to have a working knowledge of what does it mean to navigate that particular reality. It's just like we both play sports. And so right. when we come in from we, we both play at Clemson and when we come in into Clemson, you know, we may not be the best that we can be right now, but we are put inside of a system that will help us be the best that we possibly can at the moment. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we putting ourselves collectively in the best possible position to understand and reimagine what it means to do life together today in a society that is built on domination, segregation, oppression, and dominance? I mean, can we can we imagine and put ourselves in the right, you know, to to see ourselves from the perspective of that language, you know, of the eye in the sky don't lie. So a lot of times, you know, we can fool ourselves on the field to think that we're actually doing what's necessary to win on Saturdays. But when we go into the film room, the film room will show us that we were out of position here. We were out of position there. Our eyes was in the wrong place here. Our hands was in the wrong place here. Our feet was in the wrong place here. We made the we made a bad decision here. But you know what was crazy is even though the eye in the sky does not lie, the eye in the sky does not stop us because the reality is that we understand that in order for me to become the best that I can be, then I need to have a fundamental commitment to showing up every single day, putting things in in the bank, knowing that when it's time to take out, I've already put the work in. And so I have a playbook 
that helps me understand the complexity of the game. I have teammates that I play on a team with. I have equipment that helped me, you know, in to to have good equipment and, and, and resources that help, you know, aid the process. I have coaches that coach me, that teach me things that I do not know. And what I'm trying to say is in this country, especially in this understanding of race in our society, is if we have to use football locker room as a metaphor for what we're trying to achieve, maybe we should use the football field as a metaphor of the work we have to do. Yeah. Because everybody wants to get to Saturday. Right. You know, everybody wants to rush to these kind of idealized, you know, visions of, you know, how many touchdowns I'm going to throw, how many picks I'm going to get. You know, I'm visualizing it. And in some sense, visualization is very important for for putting something in the practice. But at some point, we can't just say, you know, hey, everything is okay, so things should go on as they should. You know, many people, I said, I shared this the other day, many people use that language of, you know, that that kind of quote that says, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting a different result. Now, we understand this when it comes to leadership. We understand this when it comes to playing. We understand this when it comes to other aspects of education. We understand this. We know that, you know, for us to we we don't we know we're not insane. We know we care about these things. And so we putting things into place so that we don't do the same thing over and over again, because we understand we know if we try to do the same thing, expect a different results. It's foolish. It's not going to happen. So we kind of, you know, do like football. We put practices in place. We put things in place. We put ourselves in the right position to make the right decisions possible. We get our rest. We have treatment. It's it's a whole system right. uh, put in place to help us be the best that we can. But when it comes to race, it almost as if we got amnesia that we can do the same thing over and over again. The same apathy, the same little, uh, the same little word, the same uh, type of understanding, the same this, the same that, and just so how some magically some some type of magic uh, is going to kind of. Uh, come down in our society and change this world. And that's just not the case. And so, as I said the other day, uh, if insanity, you know, is doing the same things over and over again and expecting a different result, if we say we want to learn about race, if we say we want to see a different racial future and we don't understand race, we don't understand how it works, we don't we don't have the language yeah. nor the experience nor the education and rhetoric and how to understand that experience in policy and practices in ideologies in the ways that, you know, we are voting in the ways that, you know, we are going to school, what schools we're going to, what jobs are available for people, what policies and practices have happened in, in history that has informed who we are today. If we're not. You know, working to understand these things and be different. You know, the only question that I have, you know, based on that quote, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting the different result is that are we insane in this society or do we just not care because we can't be both? Well, that's big. And I mean, that question in itself will have you look in the mirror like, damn. Exactly. Yeah, you know. Exactly. And, you know, this question is not to shame us, but it is to show us and to disarm arrogance. Before we can change, 
our arrogance has to be disarmed. Yeah. Because we believed oftentimes that we have the right answers. We we know what to do. We 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 got it all. But you know, just like football, when we go in there as yeah. freshmen, freshman year disarms our arrogance. Absolutely. And until our arrogance is disarmed, our heart will not be supple and humble enough. Our minds and our thinking won't be open and supple enough to realize that the way things are going is not the way things should be. And that it may not be my fault, but I have a responsibility to change it because race is defining for me. It's dehumanizing for us. It's the it's destructive for this great American project. And it has been deadly in our society. And it's not to shame us, but it is to show us that there must be better language, better policy, better thinking, better action, better awareness, more anger, more, you know, uh, systems put in place so that we can finally live up to that triple creed of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Absolutely, man. That's big time, Stu. Yeah, man. I can't. How do people? Uh, how do people get a hold of you, man? Yeah, bro. Uh, you can either visit me on my website at www.dantecstuart.com, um, or you can reach out on social media. I'm, I'm at Stuart S T E W A R T Dante C. Uh, across my social medias uh, on Instagram and Twitter. I'm more active on Twitter and Instagram than anyone. And I always, you know, I always reach back out. I try and honor, you know, uh, people's requests because, you know, we are in a challenging time right now. And, you know, with the work that I've been that, that I've put in and the position that the Lord has blessed me to be in, you know, I really do want to honor, you know, people's want to change. Uh, And I think that's what's so powerful in some sense, you know, about black people is that even though our nation has been brutal to us, we have not been been, we have not been brutal back to others. And we've always hold held out the hope of democracy. And as the 1619 Project, which many of you should read with the New York Times 1619 Project, as Nicole Hannah Jones would write that it is us, we black people have been the perfectors of democracy. And so I care about it deeply and I always reach back out. So hit me up. I'll make sure I, I can't promise I'll get back to you really quickly, but I will definitely honor your request. So, yeah. Well, look, what's the next piece you're working on? What you writing? Man, I actually just finished an essay today. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I just finished an essay today that is in some sense, you know, my vision of, what solidarity means in this moment. Yeah. I make the case that right now America doesn't have a unity or a reconciliation problem, but America has a racist and white supremacy problem. And, you know, what we need is for us as collective people in America to move from sympathy, simply looking at black people's reality and being sorry or, or kind of feeling moved by it uh, and, and, you know, just feeling, you know, just kind of feelings of depression regarding this reality to moving into solidarity, to develop practices and communities that 
believe in the local, the national, the federal, in our personal, interpersonal, our collective institutional life that black people are worth loving and fighting for. And so I navigate uh, Michelle Alexander's latest essay with the think New York Times or the Washington Post, America, this is your chance. So it's her kind of democratic vision uh, for society. And so I kind of put a little theological lens on it on the back end of looking at where do, where's my place as a black Christian in an anti-black world pursuing a loving and just democracy. So that's my next piece. So, yeah, oh, that's going to be pretty magnificent. I know because everything else you write, man. It's, Thank you, bro. It's going to be somewhere, bro. It's gonna, yeah, be, it's gonna be, you know. Look, man, you need to start collecting them, making into one book, bro. And, uh, you know, doing it that way. Well, actually, it's already. Yeah, we already in the works for a book. I um, I submitted my book proposal uh, not too long ago, uh, last week, a week before last, uh, and got publisher calls coming up uh, over the next few weeks. So, uh, hopefully, the closer we get to it, man, we'll be able to share more regarding it. I can at least share the title. Um, it's going to be entitled The Cage Bird Still Sings mm-hmm. Being Anti-Black. I mean, being black in an anti-black world. So that's it. And all of my writing right now, in some sense, is helping me kind of work out my ideas for my books and, you know, help us navigate this moment, which is very important. Like, you know, trying to make sense of faith and religion in this moment as black people, trying to make sense of blackness in this society, trying to make sense of democracy and our history, trying to make sense of where do we go from here and through our challenges, you know, is very important right now. And I believe with James Baldwin, where he says, you know, in our vision to to create a new world, it is not our statesman or our politician yeah. in our day who is our strongest arm, but it is our writers. And I think, you know, as a writer, that's kind of been my place. I feel, you know, I have to chronicle uh, the black freedom struggle as a black person who is Christian, who is very angry and enraged in this world, but also who is also very hopeful and trying to love in a world that is unloving. So, yeah. Hey, man, that's truth, man. Still, I appreciate you, man. I can't wait for the people to listen to this. Yeah, man. Man, I tell you what, you know, you definitely, uh, oh, man, you know. From the day you sat on campus, man, you know, you had a spark, man, and it's, uh, I'm glad that people are starting to see your light, you know? Mm. So, uh, Thank you, bro. You doing anything Likewise. Hey, Likewise. I'm really proud of you, building, man. You know? Appreciate you, bro. Yeah. Yes, sir. Appreciate you too, my brother.